Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest is Tracy Halverson. Tracy is President and Chief Visionary Officer at FastBot, an interactive design agency in Baltimore, Maryland. Her background in visual art and computer-based technology and her hands-on style of leadership has helped FastBot consistently create award-winning and industry-recognized websites, applications, and marketing campaigns. Tracy, known for her innovation, innovative thinking and creative problem-solving, is never short on opinions or ways to make things better, and she shares these observations in FastBot's blog and through in-person presentations and workshops. Tracy keeps her focus on big picture trends and how businesses how business is evolving and transforming within the interactive marketing arena. She ensures FastSpot engages with the right clients and works to inspire her team and colleagues to deliver outstanding results. Tracy has also been a speaker and presenter at numerous industry events and conferences, including one of 2010 South by, South by Southwest's most talked about presentations entitled, We Fucked Up, Now What? Exploring Failure with Happy Cog and Friends. More recently, Tracy presented Becoming, Become a Storymaker at Confab London, as well as Creating Healthy Client Relationships at Owner Summit and Art of the Art of Content at the Wharton Web Conference in 2015. Welcome, Tracy. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So before I get into my, my specific questions, can you talk a little bit about FastBot in regards to the type of work you take on um, beyond what you, know, you, you say you do on the website and the type of work that you are frequently asked to do? Does this sync up with the work that you actually do? <laughs> Yeah, fortunately, it does sync up or, uh, you know, I'd be doing a lot of things differently, I suppose. But um, I think that the kind of work we look for is work that involves a lot of problem solving that goes beyond simply a design or technology solution. Um, it's amazing to me how much a website can transform an organization, uh, not just from the, the, the story it tells to the outside world, but the way it makes people think about how they are how they're working together, uh, what they're you know what they're doing for their audiences, what what their main you know priorities are in their jobs. When you when you really do a successful website project, it can really be impactful. And um, the most impactful ones are the ones where we get to come in and, and solve real problems. And I think that lends us to working with organizations that that already are predisposed to caring a lot. Um, these aren't people who are. You know, this is not. Uh, Fortune 500, you know, e-commerce heavy, uh, investor-bound kind of startups. These are these are organizations like higher ed, cultural institutions, associations, nonprofits that tend to attract people who really care about what they're doing and really care about the people that they're servicing, and it it makes a difference in in our ability to collaborate with them. Um. So what is what is like the work look like that you? do on a regular basis? Is it mostly website? Is it a mix of website and app? Um, I mean, do people even ask for email templates? Is it branding? Is I mean, can you give a kind of like a snapshot of what the modern interactive design agency, you know, works on? 
Sure. I mean, I think we're probably a little bit unique in that we do most of our focus is on websites. Okay. Um, I do think there are a lot of agencies out there that, that offer a little bit of everything. Um, and we do, you know, we do end up supporting our clients once we've gone through a, a website project, you know, we really know them well at that point and we've, we've built a lot of trust up over the period of, of the project. So we'll end up continuing on and working with clients on email templates or, um, doing some microsite work or additional things they want to spin up. Apps are, they seem to be a little bit of a flash in the pan. We're uh, mm -hmm. seeing those die out a little bit as people realize how competitive it is and, and how specific that app needs to be targeted to succeed. Um, we saw a lot of people asking and sort of thinking that the app was going to be the, the holy grail to all their problems. Um, <laughs> A couple of years ago, but that's changed a bit. So for us, it's really primarily websites, and it's you know it's large, complicated websites with content management systems put into place, and a lot of focus on content strategy and on um, you know prepping the teams to maintain those sites once they're once they're launched. Um, I have a follow up question about the apps versus websites, and I'm using this in the context when I'm in the classroom. I'm telling students that you know they really need to learn web because because they want to they really are excited like no i want to mock up a, a an app and i was like the website can do the same thing that an app can do well a majority of it uh a lot of that technology that you know is only accessible via the app um native app is now accessible through um browsers so how much do you think that's come into play as well? Just the fact that the evolution of HTML5 and just, you know, how browsers can access the the features of a device. I think that's been, I think that's been a big part of the, um, again, the flash in the pan effect with apps. So a, a lot of what an app could do now a website can do, and it can, if it's fully responsive, it can mimic an app. It can work great on a, a smartphone. Um, which was, I think, a lot of the early appeal of the app is that it, it was a stand-in for what non-responsive websites couldn't couldn't do. Um, you know, but the barrier to entry with a website is a lot lower than an app. You don't need someone to go somewhere and download something and sort of install it on their on their device. Um, I can't. You know, it's just the the web is a much more fertile. Um, playing field. And I think that's where people need to, they need to have a really good reason to go for an app versus a website. Um, and so lately that this has got me thinking about the process of interactive design, uh, specifically versus print design. So I believe that there are a lot of differences that make it increasingly harder for students coming out of print only and print heavy programs transition to interactive design positions. Uh, to give you a, a more specific example, um, when you design a poster, you uh, the process is same where it comes to like you do your research, you do your thumbnail, you do your tight sketches, you do a computer mock-up, and then you do a final print. But that final print is fixed size. There's only one size that it's going to be viewed at, period. Whereas in interaction design, your your mock-ups, unless you create 500 different mock-ups, <laughs> you, you can't replicate all the different user experiences. So I'm curious, A, how ready are students 
um, or, you know, young professionals when they come into the industry to work with this? And B, what's your process at FastBot to manage that, you know, the, the client expectations and all these other <laughs> aspects of it? That's a good, bunch of good questions in there. Um, yeah. <laughs> I agree with you. I think it is... I think it is night and day between the world of print and the world of interaction design. And to me, one of the biggest things, and I, I even see people who've been building websites, uh, or certainly you know, designing and building websites for, for years, they still forget about this. You know, at the end of the project, you hand this thing off, and it needs to be prepared for almost everything within it to change. And it needs to be changeable by the people you give it to, and then that change will impact the people who look at it. So you're you're handing over something that that needs to be very malleable and flexible and and yet at the same time very targeted and very um, organized so that it doesn't fall apart when all of that change starts happening. And you know we're not building interaction design for entertainment so that people can sit back and just hit some buttons and and be wowed by what happens. It's really it's for sharing content and people have to think about that. When they're, when they're building these things, how is this going to best serve what th this particular business or organization needs to do with this particular bit of content? So, you know, understanding that and diving deep into that early on is, is a lot of where we spend our, our time and energy. Um, so, I, you know, I think that, that, that that's a, a big problem um, that, that students need to get their minds around is that they're not, especially if you're a print designer and you're so used to once something goes to press, it's done. It's all out into the world for all to enjoy. Um, that certainly is the complete opposite with a website. It's never, it's never fixed and done. In terms of managing client expectations with all of the different um, experiences that we need to plan for in a, a fully responsive type of environment, that's a, that's a very interesting space and there's a lot of good dialogue around how best to approach it. Um, at FastBot, we tend to, we, we really like to start out with a uh, a wide canvas, uh, sort of a high fidelity canvas, and then boil it down from there. Um, there are a lot of people who say you should be designing and thinking about mobile first, but from our experience, it's it's harder to span that up, and I think you end up playing a different kind of game um, that becomes more of a decorative game or a, a more impartial decision-making process about how that content starts to stagger out and, and spread as you go from mobile to tablet, let's say to desktop or laptop, um, versus making decisions once you have the full canvas, all right, now we're going to start making decisions to pull this down and whittle it down. Um, that allows us to have a, a more, I guess, a more um, fluid conversation with the client and it, it brings up harder conversations. Um, I think it's easier to start out with, with things that you can say these three things are all important. They're all going to be on, let's say, the top level of, of the experience on a desktop. Well, now we have to start talking about how they're going to stack in a mobile. And, and then you're having more productive conversations versus having the stack predetermined and then it becomes a little bit more impartial about what you pull up. Does that make sense? I am so glad you said that because I've... I've, I've read everywhere, mobile first, mobile first, and I get it. I totally understand it. But when I'm in the classroom, trying to teach from a mobile first 
it just doesn't make sense to the students. Right. Well, you know, you've got designers too. Yeah. And and as a as a fine artist, I will tell you that sometimes you really want the bigger canvas to really express yourself and to really um, have some room to explore and and you know when you're working with mobile first, you're really starting with a limited palette, and that's great. There there's there's a lot of amazing things can be done within limitation and restriction, but to always be starting there and then adding on. Uh, when you need to serve the the other half of the audience, which right now we're kind of at this 50-50 split in a lot of situations between people who are coming on desktop, laptop, and people who are coming on, on mobile and tablet. And I think that it's much harder for a creative person and a designer to work in that way. Um, I do think that people who are on the development side of things do prefer a mobile-first approach because it, it makes things a lot easier um, and not in a bad way, not in a, not in a dumb way easier, but it makes things a lot easier to plan for and to accommodate for when you start with mobile first. So I can see both arguments, but I think yeah. being a design heavy agency and one that really puts a lot of emphasis on that creative process, I want our team to have room to explore. And right now that room exists more, you know, more fully in a, in a desktop environment that doesn't mean that we don't then challenge ourselves when we get to the laptop or the, um, the, the mobile experience, you know, how can we make this really amazing and, and, uh, powerful and effective as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you also brought up that distinction because, so when I teach, um, an introduction to, um, interactive and interaction design, uh, I, I'm teaching HTML and CSS. So from the design perspective, you know, that single column of mobile, like you've we just discussed it it just doesn't make sense that that to going from mobile first to um the desktop visually but coding wise it is so much easier <laughs> to start from mobile first single column and then expand on it and progressively enhance or however you want to you know label it to get to the you know a desktop experience or a large format experience so the the it's just the two are opposite and it's really hard as an educate you know educator trying to m navigate that yeah I, I think it's um it boils down to you know if, if you've got something really amazing that you've designed and planned for for a desktop experience you have to really consider the changes you're going to make to those little moments of amazingness as you start to compress it down for those smaller breakpoints Whereas if you have something amazing and awesome on your smaller breakpoint, let's say your mobile view, it's a lot, you can be less considerate, I think, as you make changes to how it's going to scan and, and scale and um, change to fill that desktop view. And, I, you know, I might get some pushback on this from people who are real advocates of that mobile first, but at least, you know, I'm not saying everyone should do it this way, but this is the way that works best for us. And as long as the team is not making the same mistake, you know, going our way and ignoring um, the time dedicated to thinking about that mobile experience and that desk or that tablet experience that I'm okay with, with them having that bigger canvas to start. Probably takes us more time, but I think the output's better. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the pushback is going to come from, and this is a gross generalization, but front-end developers. And I think mobile first from the front end developer perspective is makes more sense 
because I've I can do both and I think it makes more sense on that end but on the visual side it just doesn't I and this is where and this kind of leads up into like a follow-up question is like so on the visual side things are you know still need to be flushed out on what these new processes are and and how do we approach it maybe is there a better way to approach it um and one of the things that I kind of in follow-up to like the process of how FastBot does it and I'll give you an example of what I'm showing students in the classroom this time is I'm having them start off with doing um style tiles for you know to get the to get the visual you know look mood feel um at the same time as they're doing wireframes that are just really design agnostic that just like where does this content go and then we're going to switch to doing element collages you know so they're never actually designing something in context they're just doing it to the you know to like the to a little to a lesser level and then they can start you know maybe plugging those into wire you know to like a a wire framing um thing like a zerb or bootstrap or or whatever so how do you go about that process in your um at fastbot <laughs> well it's this is a hotly uh discussed topic um there are you know, we've played around with a lot of different ways to get a client to start thinking about the design um, before we're actually designing so that we can really get on the same page. And it's the more decisions you can make collectively before you actually show them design, the more likely you are to be closer to what everybody is happy with. So I can see the the attraction for doing things like style tiles or mood boards. Um, and we have certainly uh, tried those in the past. And we have not seen a lot of benefit, and I, and I attribute that to one major cause, which is that when you finally show the client design that actually has their content in it and represents this thing that we're all working towards, um, their opinions are going to change. And so as much as they might have agreed that this font look, looks lovely or this uh, color combo is a good color combo or this kind of stylistic approach to photography is, is good – they inevitably change their minds when they see design that is is more fully realized, and we don't you know we really um, we're an agency also. I think what's unique about our approach is that we always try and show multiple designs to a client. So there's a lot of places where they'll go through a lot of that work, but that allows them to just show one design, and it's like okay, here's what we've arrived at. Now we're going to tweak this, but this is it. We bypass some of those approaches. Uh, we do wireframing and and, uh, and think a lot about the content strategy and the organization and the, the user flows. But once we get into design, we find that the conversations around looking at actual uh, realized design that includes the client's content and has started to integrate some of the content strategy that we've developed, it yields a much more productive conversation when we start talking about what they're responding to, what they have questions about. Um, you know, at this point we're talking about this is here because this is the most important target audience and this is what the persona work told us and, you know, this is what the outcome needs to be. So that's why we're doing this. And it has less to do honestly with the, the look and feel and has a lot to do with the strategy, but the conversations we have around those decisions. And we also, uh, as a aside to all of this, we always have different designers doing these things. So it, they're always very, very different approaches 
coming off of the same creative brief. So we have the same primary objectives that the clients agreed to. We have keywords around look and feel, voice and tone. And so all of these things we've spent a lot of time focusing on and agreeing upon and adjusting with the client. But then when we start looking at those designs, really good conversation happens around a much more real scenario than what a style tile or a mood board can yield for us. So that's that's really our approach um, and, and where we've we've been, you know, uh, pushing our process towards re- more recently. Yeah, that makes sense that that's going to be a jarring uh, step when you go from something that's been just, you know, out of context to all of a sudden put into their context. And so I could see that could be a, a big wake. Like, wait a minute. I didn't think it was going to look like this when we got to this, even well, though know, they agreed to it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the biggest things, and again, that I think everybody forgets about is that you've got people looking at design but they're looking at things that are going to impact their day-to-day life. If you show someone a, a big area of complicated content and, and rich media, and that's on their plate to manage, and the content strategy says this is super important and we need this to change once a week, you're, that person's not looking at, they're not thinking about what it looks like. They're thinking about how much time it's going to take them away from other things that are already on their plate. So, you know, you, you kind of forget you're showing people things that are going to, you know, ruin their day or make their day better that are going to give them a, a raise and a promotion or, or get them kicked out because they can't sustain it. So it's, that's a real important factor that, that I think, um, more web teams need to be thinking about. You know, I'm going to, you mentioned web teams and you've mentioned content strategists, you've mentioned developers, you've mentioned designers. So I'm asking this because in the classroom, students work in isolation, perpetuating that stereotype of a solo rock star designer. Because of the complexities of digital design, design has become a team sport again. So I'd like to know the specifics of what it's like to work at a digital agency as an interactive designer. Things like who's sitting on what meetings, who does the research, the testing, you know, all that. Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a great question. I If anyone thinks they're going to just roll into a digital agency and become a, a solo rock star. I think they're uh, in for a rude awakening um, because of exactly what you just described. It's it's a complicated ecosystem now and every team can benefit so much from what the other teams are doing. So for example, when we have certain design reviews at FastBot, it's including the UX team and the development team. So the development team is looking at things to make sure we don't put anything in front of the client that's, you know, that they're going to fall in love with that's completely impossible or that is going to suck all of the budget out of the development time and leave nothing left. So, you know, we're trying to be cognizant of those things early on. Um, the UX team is involved in design reviews because they've gained tremendous knowledge from going through a lot of the early research. So they've been interviewing different groups, they've, they've created personas, they've usually, um, you know, created the, the uh, inter- information architecture and wireframes at that point, so they know the content better than anyone else, and they also know the audiences better than anyone else. So, you know, it, it's one thing to say, here's this document that this other team created, review it, but we, why, you know, why do that when we're all in the same space, or we can dial a few people in on Skype for a virtual meeting? So I'm a huge, huge believer in sitting down and communicating about these things in in real time. And it's not always the most comfortable meetings to have because this industry tends to attract a lot of introverts. 
Um, we're all attracted to the computer for a reason, and I think one of those reasons oftentimes is the promise of sort of solitary confinement and productivity. Um, and meetings can be disruptive and annoying, and everyone hates them, but there's no substitution for just good old communication. And if I'm in a meeting, I'm going to do my best to kind of stir it up and say, well, are you happy with what is happening here? Does this meet the needs that your team established? And hey, are you are you hearing? Are you meeting the uh, you know the goals that you guys set out for yourselves? And just really pushing each other to you know to never get complacent and to always look for areas to you know do a better job, make something more user friendly, make something more compelling. Um, I don't think that can happen in a, a vacuum. So I think that we push each other to be better. I don't see people make great leaps of of progress by themselves. Yeah, no, it, designing in a vacuum is the worst way to design. So in the classroom, though, that becomes problematic because uh, you've got a class full of designers. Right. So, um, so what are, I mean, do you have any kind of suggestions or strategies maybe like to help designers break out of that? Um, I myself, I just try to play as devil's advocate. I try to, you know, say, hey, you know, this is not going to be performant and that image is just too big and you're using too many fonts because it's not going to work on a 3G. But um, do you have any suggestions on how to do that or any things yeah, we can yeah. do? Well, the only one I would suggest really for, for designers is, um, you know, to, to always be thinking beyond uh, describing, you know, the real estate of their design. Kind of, as Mike, I think Mike Montero refers yes. to it, like giving the, the real estate walkthrough. Um, I think designers need to know how to sell their design and defend their design and argue on behalf of their design. And the only way to do that is to have really strategic reasons for why everything is there that meet the needs of the assignment or the project or the client, um, you know, where, wherever you are in that process. So if you are in a classroom and you've been given an assignment, well then defend the heck out of why that design meets all the needs of the assignment and some extra stuff here. Wow. Isn't that amazing? And now nobody is, is going to pick it apart. If you just kind of sit there and, and dial it in with your design, you're just inviting people to pick it apart. I mean, why not pick it apart at that point? So, I think that that's a huge, huge uh, thing that designers need to get better at and be thinking about, and it will make them much more successful in their careers, and it will make their their work uh, much more successful. You know, one thing that I just this just recently popped into my head. I think I was showing my uh, students a, a video with Samantha Warren when she was doing her presentation on on style tiles, and she mentioned she's like, I mean, she she mentioned something about, you know, asking if you, she was asking questions um, about if this, I would say this is more in regards to brand, but she was asking about um, if you were a car, if your company was a car, what kind of car would it be? And it, it got me thinking is that that's what's I think missing in the classroom is the students don't have a chance to kind of play that psychologist um, and really like interview the whoever their client is i mean because the client is the the teacher you know so it's it's not as dynamic as it can be um and so i'm wondering if there's a way for you know students to kind of get a little bit more maybe like educators to do a better job of like making 
students aware that they that there's questions they have to ask um, to fully understand what they're approaching. Does that question make sense? It, it does. Um, it, it's a good, you know, it's it's a good sort of puzzle to think about um, because as a as a student, you want your students to learn, and you certainly don't expect your students to be acting like experts and consultants. But then, as soon as a student gets out into the real world, they're being asked very quickly to kind of obtain that confidence um, to play the role much more of a consultant than of a doer, you know, of a learner. And it's a, it's a tough, um, a tough thing to balance. And, you know, and I think very quickly, you know, you, you see young people that after they've been doing this for a couple of years, they're put into positions where they're consulting a, a, a big deal client. And I think that's very intimidating for a lot of them. I think the best way to get there is to realize that you, you are there to understand and unearth things and try and come up with solutions to things. You're not there to ask the client what they want. And that's yeah. one of the biggest mistakes you can, you can make. The client doesn't know what they want. That's why they're hiring you. And more and more, you know, so these days we're not, we're not just helping the client solve a website problem. We're, we're helping them solve an institutional problem or a marketing problem or a brand problem. And so if you ask the right questions, what you end up showing them, back to my point earlier, is you know, what you end up showing them can really transform them in much more than a, a new website kind of transformation. But you can transform them in how they think about themselves and how they talk about themselves and how they organize themselves internally, which means their business is going to change, whether it's a higher ed website or a... Um, you know, or, or uh, somebody selling something, you know, selling a, a new product online. And asking questions is fascinating. I mean, I, if you don't want to know more and you don't want to dive into what, if you just want to sort of say, well, I'm just going to sit back and make you something beautiful and amazing because I'm the designer and I don't need to know all about your, uh, your problems and your challenges and your hopes and dreams, well, then you're missing, I think, 90% of your job. Yeah, and I think we do a horrible in education. I think we do a horrible job of that little facet of it just because of the nature we're handing them the assignment. Right. So we've already kind of made those decisions when those decisions in actually reality are organic. Um, okay, so are, maybe you guys need to like let them decide what the assignment is based on a, a you know, a, a, a person that can stay. Maybe the, maybe the teacher is the stand-in for the client and they need to be interviewed by each student or team. And then that person or team decides on what the assignment is. Yeah. And I actually, I'm glad you said that because that is exactly what was just racing through my mind right now. It's like, oh, you know what? They could just interview me. I mean, it's better than nothing <laughs> when I, yeah. you know, at certain stages. And you can lie to them and make it interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, yeah, <laughs> it'll be fun. All right. So we're getting close on time. So I have one more question that I'd sure. like to ask you. And I've, I, I asked this question a lot and I never seem to get a definitive answer. Um, but maybe there isn't one, but I'll ask it again anyway. What type of work in a student's portfolio gives you the best indication that they will be successful as interactive designers at FastSpot? I like to see a body of work, not just one piece, but several pieces in that portfolio that show that someone is really interested in problem solving. That can be, you know, we hired a designer once who had never done any web work, which is rare for us, uh, but her print work was meticulously 
obsessively organized and structured in a way that just, you could tell she was just obsessed with solving this problem in this very organizational way. And it, we just thought this is going to be a natural transition for her. Um, so what I like to see, again, is somebody who's not trying to just come up with a bell and a whistle um, or decorate over the top of a challenge, but who has really dug into it and said, well, so this was my solution and this is why I decided to do it this way. Um, that is what I want to see in a portfolio. Oh, so as a quick follow-up, what don't you want to see? Is there something <laughs> you're tired of seeing? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm tired of seeing, unfortunately, I'm tired of seeing, um, it, it's hard to see the assignment work, even though that's all of it, all a student has, because you see a lot of it. Um, that's the same. So I would say to students, when you get those assignments, do your best to come up with something that you know is not is going to look different. Um, hopefully the problem-solving process can get you there and allow you to come up with an, a, a different kind of approach. Um, but I like to see, you know, I don't like to see that students have just relied on their coursework to, to get their portfolio together. You're, there's no way that if you just are relying on what you're learning in class, that you're going to be prepared, well prepared or competitive to go out into the job market. So, you know, I don't like to see someone who hasn't pursued internships, who hasn't taken on freelance jobs over the course of the summer. There are tons of people who need web work done, who are happy to pay you pretty decent money for, for students and go out and, and do that work or volunteer your time um, I want to see people who who've experienced the real world a little bit. Um, I'd be I'd be worried that a student who'd done nothing but their coursework for their portfolio would have a hard time adjusting to the challenges of uh, client-based work. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm gonna have to play that for my students now. <laughs> so Tracy, before I let you go, is there anything that you are working on that you would like to share, or something that you want to promote? or maybe a final piece of advice for design educators that we didn't cover? I think, you know, we, we covered a lot of the things that are definitely on my mind right now. Um, but, I, you know, I'm really interested in, in what happens with these websites that we're, that we're busy making or even, you know, apps. Um, what happens with them once we're done with them? Because I think that it, there's such a tendency to kind of wipe your hands of it and move on to the next thing. Whereas you, you're, you've created something that, that really needs to, to move on and, and do a lot of work. You know, I think in our industry, we've seen a few cycles now where these organizations uh, spend a lot of money and time on these big elaborate website projects or apps only to have to turn around and throw them away and start over from scratch. And I think that that is uh, a problem that no one's really come up with a good solution for. I think it has to do with, you know, with the way the relationships are crafted between the agency and the client, but also in the way that the agency and the client think about what they're building together and, you know, how it needs to, to live in the world. So that's something that I'm really interested in uh, personally um, and, for, and for the, you know, the future of, of my company. Um, but for students, you know, I think that it's, it's just a really fast, it's a fascinating environment to be in. You know, the Internet is still quite young when you think about it. Um, we may not even be building websites in, in five or 10 years. It might be something completely different. So I think it's just always important to look at what's coming down the horizon and how people will change their lives to, to let this technology kind of play a bigger role or play a different role. 
And so what we're doing today, you know, you really do need to be keeping your eye on the horizon for, for how it's going to shape and, and morph into the future. Yeah. Well, you know, just a, one observation uh, with that, um, like what happens to a website after you hand it off to a client. Um, I, I have struggled with that for eternity. And that's one of the things that I don't like about web is that it doesn't end. And I think that's a holdover from our print mentality is that when you hand it over, it's when you hand it, once the files go to the printer, it is done. There is nothing really left to do with that artifact other than maybe some metrics to see how successful it was, but it's not a living, breathing thing that can expand and go through this agile process, maybe evolve. And I think that's something that educators can do a lot more to make students realize that really that's not the final version that you just produced. That's version one. <laughs> that's 1.0. Right. What is if you're like an Amazon or a, you know, a company like that, you're going to have millions of versions. So what, you, you know, it's fascinating to hear about how they make these incrementally minute changes on their website, you know, color, changing the color of a blue to a slightly darker blue on a link and then testing it with, you know, a certain segment for 10 seconds and then turning it back and uh, evaluating all of that data. So it, it is really interesting. You know, we have all of this data. So, I don't think that, that the industry still is leveraging it unless you're one of these giant businesses that can put a lot of money and time into it. So it's, um, I think it's still kind of an, an untapped uh, area of focus. Yeah, I agree. Um, thanks. Um, so that's all we have time for today on episode 19 of Design EDTU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Tracy Halverson, for being so generous with her time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you want to discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit us on the web at designedu.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at designedu today, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes Store. Thank you for listening to Design EDU Today.